Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. This episode is a little different in that it's a cross-post from another podcast where I was interviewed about sentientism. Peter Lewis is a coach, consultant, and as we found out in this conversation, a fellow sentientist. His Give Yourself the Chat podcast focuses on personal development and practical philosophy. If that sounds interesting, why not subscribe? I've included links to his show in the notes. Make sure you subscribe to Sentientism's podcast as well, of course, so you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to know what you think too, so write us a review or give us some stars on your favourite podcast platform. You can find out more about Sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word Sentientism on any social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks again for listening. Hello and welcome to Give Yourself the Chat. I'm your host, Peter Lewis, and this is the show dedicated to discussing ideas and philosophies to help you live a life of high performance. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Give Yourself the Chat podcast. Today's episode, I've got Jamie Woodhouse here, who's in deepest, darkest northern London. Jamie, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, very good, very good. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much. We've never met, but through the the wonders of internet technology, we've got so much in common. And the the sub the main subject and passion I guess you're into at the moment is this idea of sentientism, which can be a bit tricky to, to roll off the tongue in the first place, but perhaps even trickier to get people's heads around. But there's a, interesting parallels with my personal interests and professional interests and, and your passions there. So I thought it'd be lovely to to get you on the podcast, not only to educate myself and my listeners about sentientism, but let's see where that thread goes, because part of this podcast is about exploring different philosophies and everything else like that. So I'm absolutely intrigued and, and really value your time today. So let's kick off. What's it all about? <laughs> yeah. So sentientism, it's a bit of a clunky word, but in simple terms, it's a worldview or a philosophy, if you like. And it tries to answer, I guess, the two biggest questions in philosophy and ethical philosophy anyway, which are, are, you know, what is real? What what should we believe in? But also what matters morally and what should we care about? And in simple terms, I summarize it in, you know, one sentence is it's evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. So the first question, what should we believe in? It says we should use evidence of reality. We should use our reasoning capabilities to think always provisionally and probabilistically about what's real because our reasoning isn't perfect and our perception is never perfect. But that's how we should choose to decide what's what's real and what to believe in. And on the what should we care about and what matters morally question, that's the essence of the word sentientism. It says we should care and have compassion for all sentient beings, which in simple terms, anything that's capable of experiencing things, anything that's capable of experiencing suffering or flourishing. So, yeah, that's how I'd summarize it. Evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings in a sentence. Well, that's such well-articulated and well put. What what drew you to to this as more than just a passing interest? I mean, this is clearly yeah. something you're passionate about and pursuing and, and now on a mission to kind of spread this word. But what, what kind of drew you to, to this? Well, I guess, I guess my path to it, without sort of dragging through my whole life story, but I was, I was brought up in probably a very average sort of English household and culture when it came to ethics and philosophy. And we had a sort of default religiosity you know we were christians i guess but in that classical english way where it wasn't particularly serious didn't really influence our lives on a daily basis that much and we pitch up to church at christmas and easter and mm. you know those types those types of occasions but it was a default background that 
that was the, if you like, the grounding for our ethics yeah. and our and our start and our and our belief in what was real. And I guess in my early teenage years, my memory's a bit patchy. I started to question that and think about it. And one found that the evidence to support the things that the religion was saying seemed pretty flaky to me, and there were glaring inconsistencies. And particularly as I learned about other religions and the history of religion, it became fairly obvious to me that these things are much more likely to be human creations mm. through history and sociology and various reasons than they were genuinely some revealed truth. So that that sort of path, as it does with many people, is you learn more about religion, and then many people end up becoming atheistic. So I, I sort of abandoned that religion. And it wasn't a difficult thing to do. You know, for some people, leaving religion is is extremely hard. It can have social penalties. It can involve a lot of trauma. It can involve you know, social difficulties and family difficulties. And this wasn't the case, right? Because this was such a bland Anglican sort of religion. It went through none of those troubles. But it was interesting that it still probably was a process of three or four years. And it still felt quite emotionally difficult to come to terms with. Mm. Um, and part of that, I think, was that with many people, when they leave a religion or, or shift towards more atheistic views, there is a sense that they can feel that they've lost some sort of ethical grounding or moral grounding. You know, if, if there is no God, or if there is no objective right or wrong that we're being told in a book, you know, where do I go f- from here? I can leave a bit of a vacuum. And where that led me to was, I guess, was, was humanism, really, which in simple terms is, right, we believe based on evidence and reason. We reject supernatural beliefs, but we center what we think as of moral worth is, is is in humans and then the universal compassion for all humans. And so I, you know, I became a humanist. I've been a member of Humanist UK for many, many years. And I still think it's a, you know, it's a real force for good in the world. But there was a parallel thread of my own thinking around animal ethics that I originally was quite separate. So I, I went vegetarian in my early 20s. I've been vegan now for a few years. But I didn't really connect those two things together. But I guess, again, through some reading or through mm. introspection and just research into both of those fields, I came to look at humanism and think, well, there's a, there's a problem here and the clue is in the name. If we're granting compassion to humans based on the fact that humans can suffer and we don't want them to suffer, why are we drawing our boundary around humans? Because it's very clear if you follow the science and you follow the evidence that there are many other types of beings, you know, primarily non-human animals, that are capable of suffering too. So why do we draw our moral circle in humanism around humanism, surely there should be something broader. And that's what led me to a term that's been around for a long while, sentientism, was developed or first used in the 1970s. And it was first used actually in quite a derogatory set. So any of your listeners who've been interested in ethical philosophy or animal ethics specifically will know of people like Peter Singer and Richard Ryder. And they first used sentience as a guide for how we should draw our moral circle. And, and some other philosophers criticized them and said, this sort of form of sentientism is almost like another type of discrimination because you're discriminating against things that can't experience suffering. Mm. And the term never really took off, but Richard Ryder and Peter Singer and some other philosophers used it in the context of drawing a broader moral circle. And really what I've been doing in the last couple of years is just taking that term and try to recast it so that it's not just naturalistic and scientific when we're thinking about what sentience is and what beings are sentient, but just like humanism is, it's much more broadly naturalistic. It says we use evidence and reason in every domain. We reject supernatural and reveal belief in every domain. Hence, it has a stance on what's real, and it also has a stance on what matters morally. So that's sort of, yeah. I guess, my journey towards you know, borrowing that term and then recasting it in a, in a yeah, more broadly naturalistic light. 
it's really interesting how there's a, almost like an evolution of thought and experiences as well that bring you to where you are currently. But it's all grounded in how you were brought up in that sort of traditional, you know, that you talk about religiosity in the family and that sort of thing. Yeah, English Anglican type of of upbringing, and then that influences. But I was I was really struck with just a reference to to evidence, and it, it's interesting. I we all have a, a journey, don't we? But I ha- I had a particular journey when I served for twenty years in the in the military, and twelve years ago I I left, and there was this sense of I, I needed to draw comfort for, from something, so I I explored religion. Mm. explored it through the alpha course and things like this and oh yeah fascinating and, and which, which was great i mean don't get me wrong there's lots of lovely people involved in church activity and very welcoming but it was at that point where i almost had to sort of there's this almost like this sort of ritual with of okay so are you going to declare your yeah. christianity or your faith and, and and step into this because you you've played around the edges with this course and now we want to bring you in and it was at that point i thought what am i actually sort of committing to here and what am i believing or is it just a, a lot of feelings that are being generated by the people around me that make me feel safe and yeah. so i i then started to think about well is this the only and, and what i'm trying to say i think is is this when there was no evidence to back that up, I really could not make that final step of <laughs> I feel great, but why am I feeling great? And 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 so therefore I then started to explore atheism and and other things and humanism and mm. and I just found far more comfort and actually joy in what I can see with my eyes and explain rather than putting it out to something inexplicable but drawing comfort that way. And this is not to to give religious people a kicking, but for yeah. me, I could not back up without that evidence piece. It's a really, really strong piece that I think I'd love to explore with you and 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 your thoughts around that. And I think many people, when they criticise a sort of atheistic or a naturalistic worldview, they're thinking of something that's sort of really cold, unemotional, yeah, you know, heartless, technical. You know, everything's in a spreadsheet type worldview. And I just don't find that at all. No. I find such a rich sense of awe and wonder and connectedness and compassion and community in that grounded, you know, fallible understanding of reality. And, and to your point, it feels so much better to me because I'm comfortable with the uncertainty and the grounding in reality. Yes. And intellectually, I can't find that in some sort of security blanket that's based on something for which it's you know it's not founded in evidence and and therefore is practically arbitrary right it could almost be anything you could almost create anything imagine something right now choose to yes. believe in it and you can draw comfort from that you can, can draw yeah. comfort from that but then i think there's a a limitation to it there's only so far you can explain well he or she moves in mysterious ways or it's all yeah. part of a plan bigger than me and i'm thinking okay i find that really intellectually hard to accept yeah. Um, so, so they intellectually you want more, and then you hit the buffers with certain sort of supernatural beliefs because it doesn't really go beyond anything yeah. like that. So, no, but I yearn for that, and and reality I think gives you that, and science gives you that, and and don't get me wrong, I've wanted to have you know a belief so much in vitalism yeah. or innate intelligence and all these other things because it feels really cool, and if I can, yeah. keep, but it only goes so far, and I think that was my journey. It's like okay, well. Intellectually, I've, I've hit the buffers here, and there's got to be more to this. And Richard Dawkins' book, The Magic of Reality, or or Ricky Gervais, when he when he's challenged by people of religion, saying, "Well, 
if you don't believe in an afterlife, what, you know, what is there to live for? It's well, yeah. what is there to die for? You know, actually, life is right now, and I get so yeah. much joy in in reality. So it's a bit if, of a stream of consciousness, but there, but there's something more tangible, I think, in what we're discussing. I agree, and I think that that's that's where it almost centers us back on the value of every passing moment of sentient experience. You know, what that is moral value, that is moral grounding for me. It's is you know what we're experiencing second to second right now. Yeah. But your point on evidence is really interesting because many religious people or many people who have supernatural views, because this isn't just about religion, right? This is also about, I don't know what age group your listeners are, but Father Christmas, fairies at the bottom of the garden, you know, there's a long list of beliefs for which there's no foundation. You know, flat earthers, conspiracy theorists, you know, the list goes on, right? Yeah. Most of the wellness industry, anything with Paltrow cells, you know, there's a long list. And many people will say, oh, hold on a minute, but there is evidence for those things, right? Mm. There's this book, you know, the Bible or the Quran or, and, you know, another ancient source or, or their own personal experience. You know, it's very common. People will have a sort of religious feeling, sense of, sense of experience that they interpret in a certain way. Um, and, and those things are evidence. I guess the problem is they're just not very good evidence. And when you look at different sources or you look at different corroborations or you look at different interpretations that might be actually more convincing and require less stuff to be injected in, right? That's that's really about this sort of probabilistic judgment of evidence that, that I think undermines those arguments and those stories. It doesn't mean there's there's no evidence. It just means that the quality of the evidence when you assess it in a rounded way mm. is very, very poor. But it's interesting because when when you lead through that conversation, many people actually then deliberately abandon evidence and reason and, and in preference for faith. And, and in a way that, that almost is the essence of many religious belief systems is, is almost a pride that we're not relying on evidence and reason. We have a faith that does not require physical evidence. It's, it's something that's beyond that or separate from that. And there's almost a pride in believing something for which there's no evidence because that shows my dedication to the cause. And either approach is interesting, but neither of them are intellectually convincing to me. But, but on the flip side, I think we've got to be very careful about a naturalistic stance because it's often criticized, you know, scientific worldview or a naturalistic worldview is often criticized for not having the perfect answers. Mm. And, and we shouldn't pretend to have the perfect answers. You know, sometimes scientists or people with a natural naturalistic worldview can come across as quite arrogant and confident that they know what's true. Mm. But we have to be careful on that side of the fence as well because you know, any good naturalistic worldview has to be probabilistic, has to be provisional always open-minded, always open to new evidence. Many scientists have been wrong, and that's, in a way, the power of that worldview is that it's, it's progressively – it's never right. It's always getting less wrong, but it's always doubting and it's always provisional. So to your question about evidence, I think there's some interesting angles on both sides yeah. about yeah. You know, how that plays in. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking no. about knowing we're not perfect. That's what helps us to improve and and on that, I guess, you know, it's the basis of the scientific method is that actually we have this hypothesis, but but if it is proved otherwise, then that then shapes the new hypothesis and we yeah. keep pushing that on. Whereas perhaps if your hypothesis, your faith hypothesis is disproved, there's a reluctance to even look there. You talked about flat earth conspiracy. I, I don't know if you watch Beyond the Curve on Netflix but uh, oh, you've got to go and watch it. But anyway, a lot of flat earth try and use a scientific method to prove their theory. And every time the scientific experiment 
comes up with a result that they didn't want. So they, they just go and pursue another test to try and find a test that will prove what they want. And you think, well, this is just really defeating the entire object of trying to be objective. It's hilarious. It's fantastic. I really want to stress that actually I don't really care what anyone believes, but yeah. you know, it's at the moment you try and thrust it down my throat or just try and use it as a weapon against me or then, then I do have a, an objection to that. I totally agree. And I think that's an important distinction to make because I'm, well, I think the world will be a better place if everyone had a naturalistic worldview. I'm fully in favor of total freedom of belief, right? People should be able to believe what they want to believe and, mm. and, and form those beliefs in whatever form they like. And while I have an intellectual disagreement with their conclusions, that freedom is deeply important. But I think going over and above whether, you know, religious or supernatural worldviews are correct or not, I clearly don't think they are. It's their implications that I think are important. And some of those implications can be very positive. There can be a lot of deep, genuine compassion in a religious worldview. There can be real community, a sense of cohesion, and some you know, really positive things. But often there are difficulties as well, right? There are practical implications, there are behaviors, there are actions, there are ethics that, that come out of those worldviews that are, that are warped. And sometimes those are quite subtle minor things, and sometimes they're egregious and and, and awful. And, th and that's where I think where you might have a freedom of belief, you then start to think, but if there's warped ethics or harm being caused, you know, that's where you know, a modern society needs to take a more robust view. And I think yeah. one of the central reasons why that warping tends to happen is that in almost any religious system, there's something more important than suffering and flourishing of sentient beings and humans. And as soon as you put something as more important than suffering, you risk causing suffering in the name of the thing that's more important. So if your God or your priests or your church or your dogma or your commitment to believe in the earth is flat is more important to you than suffering and death of beings that really exist, you can see how that will lead you to yes. you know, harmful behaviors. Yeah, so, that's a very um, dangerous road to go down, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there, there is something to get uh, energetic about or vociferous uh, about uh, opposing that kind of thing. I'd like to explore with you sort of values around sort of sentientism and, and what we're exploring here. And I, I want to tee this up with, I won't name the, the person, but as a family member of mine once used a local garage to have their car fixed. And, you know, people who are working sort of these sort of, it can, you often feel that, are oh, they ripping me off? Oh, they're charging so much for leave. And they said, oh, they were lovely. Two, these two men that run this garage, they were so nice. They, it's a really good price. And they were really helpful and everything. They were just so nice to deal with. They must be Christians. And I thought, really? Why, why is that? So I'm not a Christian. And I have no sort of faith-based belief. And yet I would describe myself as being honest and have integrity and wouldn't want to rip people off and all those things. So why would one concept have sort of dominion or authority over people's values and another wouldn't? And why would you need to have one, one thing in place to have another? And I feel so it's a really interesting sort of worldview. And I'd just like to kind of segue really into sort of the, the values piece around yeah. sentientism and it's not having dominion over, you know, for instance, you know, the non-human animal kingdom. And, and how much of this is, is fundamental to sentientism, this, that, that sort of value of, of life, I guess? It, it is fundamental. So, in, a, in as you say, in a, in a sort of maybe in a religious world system, while there is genuine compassion there, right? You, you know, most religions have got some version of the golden rule. You know, mm. do unto others as you have done to you. They genuinely do see, or generally see, suffering and death of humans certainly is is negative. Often, the suffering and death is only negative if they're people in your tribe, and suffering and death of others, you know, is less of a worry, which mm. is obviously a, obviously an issue. 
But actually, at its deepest root, the religious worldview doesn't say good and bad is suffering and death and flourishing and life. It says good and bad is defined by the essence of the deity. That's mm. really what good and bad is. So, so if God tells you to kill someone, it's good to do that mm. because good and killing is bad. But if God tells you to, that overrides it because actually the deepest value is based in the essence of God. Mm. And that can lead to some issues. So when people move away from that, some people are then think, well, then the, if, we, if we don't have that absolute deistic definition of what's good and bad, there is none. Mm. Right? So, so they will either assume that you know, people who don't believe in gods are out raping and pillaging and murdering because we have no moral basis, which is a little odd because you, know, you seem like a nice guy and I certainly don't do that on my weekends. <laughs> or they'll go to a sort of another worldview that I think is deeply insidious, which is a sort of extreme relativism where they say, you know, there is no good or bad. We just have to sort of work it out. If a particular culture or group happens to come up with an ethical structure that is deeply harmful, who are we to judge, right? They've, they've worked something out. They seem to agree it. Their good is different from our good. Mm. And, and so what sentientism does is similar to humanism. And it says, well, well, no, you don't have to abandon a moral grounding there's a moral grounding staring us right in the face in reality. So we are evolved beings that experience things from moment to moment. We call the things we don't like experiencing suffering. We call the things we do like experiencing flourishing. You know, isn't that a good moral grounding? And it sort of seems obvious to say, but you know, suffering and death are bad things in the moral system and flourishing and life are good things. And it's while that seems really blindingly obvious, most people on the planet actually have a different way of thinking. <laughs> mm, yeah. Which I find strange, right? So for me, that you don't have to abandon an ethical grounding by when you move away from the supernatural. You can actually reground your ethics in a naturalistic understanding of the real world and then our experiences as, as sentient beings. And then by extrapolation and by inference, you know, in the same way as you know, I'm, I'm highly confident of my own sentience, probably the thing that going back to Descartes, where you know, each of us is probably most confident about. But I'm also highly confident in, in your sentience and of other humans too, because largely we have the same sort of information processing architecture. We came from a similar evolutionary history. You know, I can talk to you and you know, infer certain things from your behavior. So I'm pretty confident you've got a subjective experience going on in your mind and in, in your body too, right? which yeah. would lead me to see causing you to suffer as a moral negative and then you can extend that inference beyond the human species too, which you know, hence why going from humanism to sentientism to saying if what we care about is suffering and flourishing, surely we should include in our moral circle any entity that is capable of suffering and flourishing. Why would we draw a line to exclude and ignore the suffering of some types of beings, whether they're you know, other humans or, or non-humans? I'm rambling a bit, but that's, no, that's no, where the sort of values, the value thing is grounded in yeah, suffering, flourishing, death and life and yeah. the real understanding of those things. To your point, there's enough of that in front of us without him having to overlay labels or precepts that need to be in place in order to, yeah. to experience those. But I'm reminded of about 15 minutes ago when you were describing about the, the religious view of the atheist is that it's a very sort of austere, cold, unemotive, everything's in a spreadsheet, everything kind of... Li- that, and the fact that, you know, if you don't have a sort of some kind of religiosity around your values and ethics, and therefore you can't necessarily be a good person. And it's far from it. When you strip all that away, me personally, my personal journey is I've experienced life in a far richer way as a result of not having those things in the way. And actually, it's helped me 
I mean, men of a certain age, we, we are predisposed perhaps to suffering, you know, sort of midlife crises or depression. I've suffered from depression for the last few years or so, and there was no, no nothing that tipped me into it. But what's yeah. going to be or what helps me manage it is actually just stripping away a lot of those things and, and just really connecting with life at a, at a sort of fundamental natural level rather than all these things that need to be in place will actually add to my depression or add to the anxiety or negativity because the moment I'm not living up to them or fail in some way, it just makes the, the damn thing worse. So yeah. I, I'm very much yeah. focused on on simplicity and gratitude for what's around me. And so much of that really chimes in with what you're discussing and and, and what you're trying to sort of spread the word around. It's I hope that it can also help. And it sounds like that's part of the journey you've been on as well. In that, in that naturalistic grounding also helps you manage your expectations on yourself. Yes. Because I think if you are, if you have a religious worldview where you, you believe that you are made in the image of God and you are expected to match up with some perfectly defined ethical standard and you will be judged based on that, in a pretty harsh way in many <laughs> religious systems, right? You might be rewarded with, with eternal pleasure or you might burn in hell forever, which is a crazy thing to teach our kids. But anyway, that's a quite high pressure situation to be in, right? Yeah. And, and I can imagine that for some people, you know, for some people that's reassuring, but for other people, it is a source of anxiety and, and concern because certainly from my own experience, when I'm experiencing stress and anxiety, it's me that's putting the pressure on. It's you know rarely some sort of external source. So I can imagine in some context that you know that religious or that supernatural cast actually could increase increase the pressure. Whereas I think if you have a more naturalistic understanding of we're pretty special and pretty amazing things as human beings, we're pretty, you know, some of the most complex objects on in the universe. But we are just things, right? We've we've evolved, we've developed, and this will get contentious for for some people. But ultimately, you know, we are mechanistic things, you know, we are just physics, right? We're quite amazing combinations of physics, but we are just physics. And I think recognizing that can maybe in some way help us to be a bit more realistic about what to expect from ourselves and, and how to deal with, you know, how to deal well, with life, well, you know, well, a little then, less judgmental about ourselves. Yeah, well, I, I guess, but then, you know, we are just physics. But if you just think of, you know, what we're made of is, you know, stardust and, and space matter and everything else like this. I mean, that just blows my mind how wonderful that is and how yeah. rich and just amazing that that might be. So therein lies beauty and excitement about yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that reality. And, th and those and those responses are part of, those are deeply important in a sort of sentientist worldview because, Again, suffering isn't just about physical pain and flourishing isn't just about you know, basic immediate physical pleasure. It's the full range of positive and negative experiences. So that includes, you know, love, existential acts, wonder, you know, a sense of meaning, you know, all of those feelings and maybe, you know, potential ranges of experiences that we haven't even conceived of yet. All of those things are of moral value. It's not just about a sort of narrow bottom end of the Maslow's hierarchy, survival, suffering and flourishing. It's a full, rich, you know, awesome experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And I guess in the, in the theme of this, this podcast, and it's called Give Yourself the Chat, I mean, so much of the philosophy of this is, is really sort of grounded in reality, grounded in what the individual can do, but also for the individual to make sense of, of, of the world around them. And for me, you know, exploring philosophy is really important and, and fascinating, actually. I, I'm, I'm drawn, I'd like to segue a little bit into what sort of, well, I've got a, I've got a sort of philosophical or a, a bit of angst around that. I know you've got a puppy. I think your puppy is a little bit <laughs> yeah. older than mine. We're both vegan, we have very sort of similar... But I do struggle with the fact that my dog, you know, I haven't got a vegan dog, 
my dog is, I've bribed him with an ethical bribe. I think it's some sort of chicken stick or whatever. Yeah. And so now my thinking is, okay, gross, right. So I've come this far, but I've still got further to go. And how, how do you deal with all these perhaps contradictions that come in or these points that you reach? And this, I'm, I'm using this, it sounds quite frivolous, but it's really important. The fact that actually, if I, if I believe that, you know, that sentientism and yet I'm feeding my dog a chicken stick, what does that say about me? Yeah. Well, that's where I'd, one, one place I'd start, and it links back to the conversation about religion, right? I think this sense that there's some sort of perfect ethical state we can achieve is often quite dangerous. And, you know, you'll know this, but you can often get that sense from within the animal ethics movement and from other vegans, right, where there's a, almost a sort of claim of perfect purity. And for those non-vegans amongst your audience, rest assured, vegans are much more vicious to each other <laughs> about whether they're vegan enough than, than they are about non-vegans, right? It's, it's yeah. absolutely incredible. And I think that, so I think that the one the reassuring thing is that the, the idea of there being some sort of perfect ethical state where we cause no harm, we cause no death, and we maximize the flourishing of all sentient life is a worthy aim, but don't kid yourself that it's achievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly not easily achievable. So it's not a standard we should hold ourselves to. So even a vegan who doesn't have pet, pets or companion animals or, or, or feeds their companion animals completely vegan is still causing harm to sentient beings, right? So, so when, you, when you farm plants in the use of pesticides or harvesting, that's causing harm and death too, right? So almost everything we do, particularly in the sort of modern consumer economy, there's some harm caused along the supply chain. So, so I guess that's the starting point is I wouldn't let you know, perfection be the enemy of the good. And I wouldn't let that, well, we can't be perfect, so let's not try. Mm. Instead, it's just about trying to work to, you know, to do better, right? And it is about thinking about ways of reducing harm. But you have to do that in ways that trade off different interests sometimes. And, and a sentientist worldview isn't some sort of necessarily some sort of completely pacifist, you know, soft minimalist worldview, even in a sentientist worldview, you sometimes have to take really hard decisions that cause harm and suffering and even death, where that's justified by other things in your in your ethical system. And sentientism is deliberately a very broad philosophical platform. So it's neutral on whether you apply deontological rules or whether you, you know, have ethical virtues or whether you, you take a more utilitarian consequentialist stance, which personally I edge towards. And it's neutral about how you manage all of these different trade-offs. All it says is Use the evidence and reason. And whenever you're working out ethical questions, make sure you include all sentient beings in your moral consideration. You might still end up deciding to cause some harm, but you at least have to seriously consider all of those different entities. So hopefully that gives a sense. As a tangent, I can also recommend a really good vegan dog food. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> and Luna likes, Luna likes V-Dog. Okay. The yeah, dogs, yeah, I mean, I'm not a specialist in this as well, so talk to vets, right? But, yeah. but generally, dogs can do really well on a vegan diet. Cats, it takes some more work, but there are some vegan cat foods yeah. available as yeah. well, but it takes a lot more care. So, I, mean, I, th I thought that's a really good explanation. I think it really ties in also to this podcast and the Give Yourself a Chat piece and that we often put pressure on ourselves to strive for that perfection. And yeah. the moment that we don't, we either beat ourselves up or, to your point, more more alarmingly, we don't even try. So yeah, if I can't achieve that, I won't even go anywhere towards that. And yet, so if you take my example, the positive impact I'm having with the lifestyle I'm running is, is so much better than it was, say, 18 months ago, but there's still much to go. And I think that's that's okay. I mean, it's being comfortable with that. And if I think back to some of the, the sort of philosophical themes of this podcast around stoicism, I'm, there's this yeah. wonderful quote by Marcus Aurelius. He talks, when we were set back or we fall down, 
just revert back to your knowledge and training and remind yourself you're a human being yeah. is that sometimes, you know, we lose our way and we just have to re rethink and then, okay, these are the consequences of those actions. Let's try and change those actions. So it puts the control back in place, but it's also recognizing it will always be short of yeah. that. And, and that's okay as long as there is the pursuit to want to be better. And I think that's sometimes we have to, I think a lot of the time we have to remind ourselves of that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you see that in both religious conversations or conversations around animal ethics, where, as you say, someone will, because they're scared of the perfect, will then disengage completely or just you know double down back into denial. Yeah. But yeah. it's also that thing, you, you, you know, vegans can be really horrible to each other, as scientists can be really horrible to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and yeah, but it's no, that that is no different to, if we think back to, you know, my religion, my God's better than your God type of argument. And we, yeah. we have to rise above that. And you know, we've both got teenage children as well. I think mine are slightly older than yours, but we, we've had some pretty heated dinnertime debates where I am, my daughter, my, my son have different ideological views and I'm, I'm really sort of pr a proud father until the point where they start throwing stones at each other. Yeah. And I say, well, stop. Your job is to be able to argue rationally. Build not just a straw man, build a steel man, perhaps, and then go at it like that. But if yeah. you can't have a an intellectual rigorous debate and still respect each other at the end of it, then actually you've got some way to go. And and I think that's what we're really trying to move towards is can we have that debate and still respect each other? Yeah. And I think that's the that's the balance between, you know, this sort of evidence and reason approach and, and the compassion, which is the most ethically important thing. And I think nearly everybody is compassionate, but we find it very easy to be compassionate to people that agree with us. Yeah. Right? The real challenge is, can you be compassionate to someone you disagree with? Or can you even be compassionate to someone who you see is causing real harm? Right? And, and that's where compassion gets really challenging, but it's deeply important because in that sort of situation, I don't think you can have a productive conversation where you're sharing evidence, you're reasoning things through, you're understanding and learning from each other, unless you have compassion from the person on the other side. And around emotive topics, that can be genuinely hard to do. I mean, the, you know, the obvious example is you know, people fighting with each other on social media. And you can see how those conversations go. Right? There's just two people bashing heads with each other, often sharing very different views, never taking the time to genuinely understand the other person's point of view. I mean, a good test is, can you explain someone else's point of view in such a way that they will agree with your explanation of it? And again, without that compassion and that listening to each side, it's very hard to have a productive conversation on the evidence and the reason and the, and the facts of it question too so i think they do complement each other well they do yeah well that, that darn ego gets in the way every time yeah. isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. and yeah. you know and, and again it's all you can do as an individual is recognize when the ego is too dominant and 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 want to do something about that so there's a whole piece around self-awareness we could we could explore there but i'd like to come back to your your sort of passion your project what what's next for the the sentientism movement as you're concerned and, and what are you getting involved in to kind of continue that work? The aim is to persuade all 8 billion people on the planet to commit to using evidence and reason and having universal compassion for all sentient beings. And as we do that, we will basically solve all the world's problems. So, so that is the plan. Brilliant. Okay. So <laughs> and, and by, by when? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, I haven't put a timeline on that yet. Uh, um, but more seriously, I think it's, there are so many different causes in the world 
and you can prioritize them in different ways. And there are many important things to do. It's uncertain which of those causes are are the correct ones. It's uncertain which are the most impactful. It's uncertain which will do the most good, but many of them are deeply important. So, you know, you might think about reducing poverty or inequality or animal ethics or managing existential risk or, you know, there's a long list of humanitarian and sentientarian, you know, projects that you can imagine that many people are you know, investing their lives and, and money and time and energy into. And in a way, the idea behind sentientism is it's much more basic than that. It's about actually upgrading our values and our ethics in a way that may not have direct impact in the same way as you know, poverty reduction or you know, animal liberation might do, but in a, in a second order impact that if people's values and beliefs and ethical structures are in line with evidence and reason and universal compassion, Almost by definition, every decision they take from that point onwards, whether it's individual, institutional, governmental, at every level, is more likely to have a more positive outcome. So in a way, while it's a, it may seem a little obscure and philosophical, I'm hoping it can actually have quite a deep, positive, longer-term impact as more people think about adjusting their views in these directions, you know, both to get more naturalistic, but also to broaden their moral circle. Mm. So, in practical terms, I've done had some, yeah, it's non-academic, but I've done some writing, doing podcast interviews, I've done some videos to just share the idea, but also to get feedback and to shape it and to refine it and to, and to clarify it as, as a very broad platform. We've had a fascinating range of academics get involved as well. So, it brought in academics from fields as diverse as, you know, as you might expect, ethical philosophy and morality, from epistemological philosophy from people who are thinking about the rights of artificial intelligences and robots and aliens, believe it or not, from people in the animal ethics field who are committed to using a naturalistic worldview to, you know, to help and reduce non-human animal suffering. So there's a broad range of academics have been involved in the idea as well, including actually Peter Singer and Richard Ryder, who came up with the term in the first place, who yeah. fortunately very supportive of you know, the recasting that I'm working on. But we were also trying to build some global communities around the idea as well. You know, I've built a website, sentientism.info. We have probably the most lively group is a Facebook group where we have people from over 90 countries involved, but we're on Discord and Reddit and Instagram and Twitter and all the other usual places. Really just to do two things, refine the idea, but also raise awareness of it and, and share it. So there isn't really an end goal. There isn't much structure. There's no organization. There's no money. There's no government. You know, there isn't, there's no membership. It's just a worldview, right? There's no sort of infrastructure around it, and that's deliberate. But we are interested in getting more people in aware of the idea. And you mentioned before we started that you'd have a look at my sort of suspected sentientists, you know, celebrity sentientist yeah. list. Um, and I think that's one thing that's heartening is that while not many people have heard of the term sentientism, lots of people already think this way. So if you if you think about people who already have a naturalistic or an atheistic or a humanistic worldview, who are also very serious about non-human animal ethics, they are basically in a sentientist mindset already. They're naturalistic and they care about all sentient beings. Or if you look at the people who are ethical vegans or in the animal ethics movement or take animal ethics seriously, but don't have a supernatural basis for their compassion. And again, they're, they're largely in that sort of sentientist mindset already, whether or not they've heard of the term. And the two, those two seem to overlap quite strongly. So I went to the Darwin Day lecture given by another famous sentientist, Diana Fleischmann, a couple of years ago. And I asked the audience of about a thousand humanists in the UK, 
how many of you are ethical vegans or vegetarians? And about 40% of the audience put their hands up, which is much higher than you'd expect from a general population. Yeah. And I think that's because if you do commit to a naturalistic worldview and you commit to evidence and reason, you can't logically draw your moral circle only including humans. You're forced by logic and evidence and reality to extend your moral circle. Now, frustratingly, most humanists still haven't followed that path, right? I've even had conversations with some very famous leading humanists who concluded an email conversation with me about sentientism with the words, but bacon, which is, which is not, a, you know, not a strong moral stance I'd expect from a, no. a moral leader. But, but, but on the positive side, I think there is a strong overlap between those two. So people who are already humanists and atheists are more likely to take animal ethics seriously. And interestingly, it looks from limited research I've seen that people who are already very serious about animal ethics seem to be much more likely to have an atheistic or a humanistic worldview. And that's partly because you know, many religions, as you mentioned before, have put humans in this sort of special place where we have the rights to have dominion over non-human animals. So that's one of the reasons why, again, I think there's a positive synergy between the naturalism and the sort of sentiocentrism of having a broad moral concern. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Jamie, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And, and I hope in some way that this podcast episode helps just introduce a few more people to the concept and the work and just think really from their point of view about what they can do to perhaps just be more aware of this important work but but equally this just this operating framework that you did which is which is a great framework for, for life and foundation of so I, I do uh, I really appreciate you you coming on on the podcast to, to chat about it you've mentioned a, a couple of ways that people can can get involved and I'd certainly encourage people to do so and and I'd love to chat to you further down the road and 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 see how it's going and and from there but in the meantime thank you so much for being on give yourself a chat thank you Peter it's been a real pleasure and we might even see you on our wall of sentientists soon so yes you may do you may do thank <laughs> it's you. been great to talk to you really appreciate it thank you thank you so much Jamie so once again, we have a fascinating guest on the Give Yourself a Chat podcast. I'm really indebted to Jamie for spending so much time exploring the fundamentals of sentiism, which is probably easier for him to say than me. I think it's really important that on this podcast, we explore philosophies and, and foundational principles that can really just make us think. And whilst I don't wish to tread on anyone's sensitivities around beliefs or values. What I do like to do is explore in an open, rational way ideas and ideas which are not only close to me, but equally ideas which would be polar opposites. So I think in the spirit of discussion and thinking and objectivity, I thought that was a fascinating episode and I'd really like to explore Jamie's ideas further down the road on a later episode. But for the time being, if you enjoyed this, thank you so much for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, then please head on over to peterlewiscoaching.com. Suggest who you might like to hear as a guest on this podcast, but equally what subjects you might like me to explore. But in the meantime, please look after yourself and I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?